This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've certainly heard of the news over the course of the last several months of uh, Elizabeth Wetlofer. She was the former new, a nurse who pled guilty to murdering eight seniors and is now facing a civil lawsuit by some of the families of her victim. Also, uh, victims also faces a disciplinary hearing from the Ontario College of Nurses. To talk more about all of this, Jordan Donich is with us, criminal lawyer with Donich Law, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Jordan. How are you today? Good, thanks. Uh, glad to be back. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Are, are you surprised in any way uh, that there's a civil lawsuit by the families here? No, I mean, it's expected, right? I mean, they want to be made whole as much as possible. I mean, the conviction's part of that. The plea was part of that. Um, but this is, you know, a natural, sometimes, uh, part of the process. And what could families hope to gain out of it? Out well, of the, the sad part is probably, probably nothing. Um, she doesn't have any money, so they may try to go after the nursing homes. And, uh, but then there's going to be a whole legal dispute over how uh, responsible the nursing home was over her actions. And how responsible is the nursing homes, or are these nursing homes over her actions? Well, that, that's going to be up to a court to determine, right? And the, nur- the nursing home is going to defend itself and, and say that, you know, this was surreptitious, it was planned, there's only so much we can control. We had proper quality controls. Uh, she was, you know, uh, radical and, and deceived us, and, and therefore there was no way we could have done anything to prevent this. What about the fact that she seemed to go from nursing home to nursing home over a period? Is there not checks and balances in place that would send up red flags over that? You know, there probably are, but you look at our workforce generally, right? People are always moving around now. That's also kind of the nature of our workforce in a lot of other ways. So, I mean, it could, look, it could appear normal. Uh, would the nursing homes have something to fear at this point? Uh, could they be part of a lawsuit, do you think? Well, they probably will be brought in. I mean, that's certainly something to be, you know, concerned about because obviously they need to retain lawyers and, you know, they need to defend themselves. Um, but in terms of what a settlement could be and or uh, judgment, um, you know, it, it, whatever nursing home is, is dragged in first is going to be careful not to set a precedent, right? Because that'll set a precedent for every other place she's worked. If not the nursing home being responsible, who would be? Who is? Well, I mean, she is, Right. She is. That's, you know, that, that, that's, that's the truth. Uh, does she have any assets, though? Who knows? Probably not. And that's why, you know, you can see the, the College of Nurses is also uh, being dragged into this. Uh, speaking of the Ontario College of Nurses, uh, going through uh, a hearing, a separate hearing as well for that, uh, is that not pretty much a moot point at, at this point? Absolutely, right? So, I mean, this is more just procedural, right? So, she, technically, technically, she can be in jail and still a licensed nurse. And to uh, revoke her license, uh, they have to have a disciplinary hearing. So it is a natural kind of progression uh, uh, of this case. But it is moot, right? It's redundant. It's not going to get her out of jail. She's never going to be able to work again anyways. It's more just a matter of uh, cleaning up uh, her professional standards. Was she not already, uh, uh, um, I guess, penalized from this organization? Was she not already in and out of this organization? So my understanding now is she's still technically uh, licensed. Uh, technically, and that's the that's the reason why there's going to be a disciplinary hearing. There has to be one to revoke a license of a member. And uh, again, why would they bother doing it at this point if, in fact, she's serving a life sentence? Probably for um, public perception, right? So you have the, the the College of Nurses wants to sever ties with this person, um, and it's it's really public perception of having someone who's still a licensed nurse in custody for eight murders or or whatever it is. 
What is their responsibility in all of this? Some may say this is too little too late. Where were they uh, when all of this, uh, I guess, started? So there'll be a review, I'm sure, in the civil suit uh, to determine whether proper protocols were followed um, with the nursing home. And, and those protocols and those rules come from, you know, they stem from the College of Nurses. That's the authority. So there will, will be some, I'm sure, uh, you know, litigation surrounding that. Uh, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, could it be uh, the Ontario College's, uh, College of Nurses as well that is facing a lawsuit? Could be, yeah. I mean, listen, people will sue whoever has money. And um, um, the accused doesn't have any money, probably. So, that, so, so they're going to go to the next closest people. Whether they'll win or not is another question. What is the role of the Ontario College of Nurses in all of this? Um, so, yeah, so they, reg- they regulate the conduct of licensees and members, okay? So their, their job is to regulate conduct, make sure um, uh, professional, con- uh, professional standards are followed, uh, run disciplinary hearings and, uh, when applicable. Um, that's their rule. Whether there's a compensation fund or not, um, that I'm not sure of, but that certainly would be a place I would attack if I was them. Uh, what is the relation between the nursing home and the Ontario College of Nurses? Is, is, there, is there some sort of agreement or some sort of procedure in place there? Not, with the, not necessarily with the nursing home per se, but its members, right, which are nurses and licensees, are regulated by the college, right? So it's, the college is the nexus, and everyone else kind of flows below it. Um, where the civil li- liability lies ultimately will be determined by the court. But again, if I was these families, uh, uh, I would, you know, you would, you would sue all these people. Uh, do you think that, what, what do you think the chances are uh, that at least out of this, we're going to see some sort of new guidelines as to what the protocol will be on cases like this moving forward? Yeah. So, I mean, you compare this to all kinds of industries, right? I mean, anytime there's uh, something tragic, you know, even in like the airline industry, right? There's always protocols, things changed to, 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 to maintain public confidence, right? That's what it's about. How does the public stay confident and trustworthy um, of these people that are uh, supposed to be caring for us? So, I, I mean, absolutely, I can see some kind of safeguard put in place, uh, to, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. I mean, that will be laborious, but I can see something being, being done. Uh, the fact that, you know, we hear so much about th- this demographic and, and the baby boomer generation uh, moving through uh, this demographic and into nursing homes and this sort of thing, is this something that we obviously have to focus a lot more on right. as, so as far I, yeah. as some sort of standard? Well, I mean, you're, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Healthcare is a growing sector of the economy, right? Just by virtue of demographics. So naturally, yes, I mean, we're going to have more nurses or we should have more nurses. We should have more long-term care and uh, we should make sure there's adequate safeguards in place to protect the public. Uh, if uh, it says that um, that the Ontario uh, College of Nurses could act, also go after money, uh, slapping her with a $35,000 fine and could actually be forced to cover uh, the college's legal costs, uh, investigation, and hearing costs. Where does that fit in in, in the process uh, if there's a civil suit as well? Would they get their money before the families would? So, so the, that, that's a regulatory fine. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter because she probably has no money. So, you know, those sanctions are good when somebody's not in prison for life and they're working and you can garnish and you can chase them. So, I mean, it, again, it's really a, it's nice to say those things. Collection is a different animal. 
Uh, critics are pressuring the Ontario College of Nurses to explain why it took so long to bring any sort of action against her. She was fired from one home for medication errors in 2014 and then went on to work at uh, Meadow Park in London, uh, where she, of course, took the life of her final victim. Doesn't it seem that the Ontario College's, uh, College of Nurses holds some sort of responsibility there? Well, it's going to depend on what they knew, right? It's going to depend on what evidence the college had. If the college knew she was, uh, um, you know, over-medicating people and turned a blind eye, then, yeah, the college has a problem. If the college genuinely, you know, did not know, did their due diligence, then I would say the victim's families are going to say they should have known. You ought to have known. Um, you didn't do your proper due diligence, even though you didn't have the evidence, you didn't put adequate safeguards in, you were complicit uh, with allowing this to happen. And that, that would probably be the argument of the families against the college. If not the, the nursing homes themselves well, and yeah. not the Ontario College of Nurses, who else would there be? Her. The accused. That's it. Those are the only people that are connected. Her, the college, and, and the nursing homes. Um, the, the, you know, and, and maybe an insurance, insurance provider wound up in there somewhere. Uh, for some kind of indemnification. That, that, that's all I can see. Uh, both families uh, that are suing are seeking $250,000 in damages. How would you arrive at figures like that? Well, the thing is, you, you, you don't. It's subjective, right? What's, what's a life worth? Um, I don't know. And, and then, you know, what's a life worth later in life? Is it worth the same? Is it worth more? I, you know, is it, you know, because they're more vulnerable? You know, that's the analysis. So really, it's probably just a number that they think they could realistically achieve, okay? Suing for $10 million, they're not going to get that. They might get a quick settlement, though, in a, you know, in that range. That, that's what I think. I think it's a, a strategic decision. So obviously, the age of the victims plays a large factor in this. Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, but I can see there being, you know, some arguments around that, right? What was the health circumstances already? You know, is it directly be associated with her actions? Is it not? I mean, you know, these, are the, 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 these could be arguments made. That, that's all I'm saying. Uh, what about the way in which uh, these victims were killed? You know, it, from what we know, it, it's alleged a, um, an insulin overdose, uh, which sort of went undetected for a long period of time. Uh, normally, when we think of things like this, um, we think of things that could be more traceable. What about the method and how this all happened? What what will what will protocol be moving forward, or how could it change moving forward when something as simple was something as simple as insulin was used to take these lives? The, the, the easiest protocol would be, you know, um, if you compare it to the new protocols in the airline industry. I mean, the pilot doesn't leave the cockpit with another pilot alone, right? There's always another person present. Um, that's, that's a comparable safeguard that could be here. I mean, used with the administration of medication. It's done in the presence of another person. Uh, do you think this has brought this issue to the forefront in other nursing homes and even the Ontario Nurses Association, or sorry, Ontario College of Nurses is, uh, is certainly looking at how they're, uh, how they're doing things? Yes, and I'll tell you why, because now they know something happened, right? So it's different now. Uh, before, you genu if you genuinely didn't know, you, you didn't know. But now everyone's on notice that something can happen, that this is possible to happen. Um, and, and, you know, should it reoccur with someone else, then there would be a more legitimate and credible legal argument that, that, that you know, something ought to have been done that wasn't. Do you think this could open another larger can of worms? In other words, something that has largely gone undetected may all of a sudden be reexamined? 
you know, it's hard to say, right? I mean, our, there's, pro, there's probably not a pandemic, right, uh, of, these, uh, of these events. But, I mean, it certainly raises the question in your brain. That's, that's natural. Especially with all the chatter in regard to doctor-assisted deaths that seem to have be surfacing in the in the in, in the last several months, right? So it's a broader topic, right? And that's and that's where all the legal issues are going to be sorted out. How do you think this is going to pan out? Um, I think the other, they're going to sue. Um, I think um, you know the question is who's going to pay, right? And these nursing homes, I, I don't know what their you know their financial coffers are like, but. Uh, it's, it's tricky because nobody wants to set a precedent, right? Nobody wants to be the first person to settle because then everyone else is going to be making claims. So they're not just thinking of one family now. If I were them, I'd be thinking of everybody because what they do for one is likely going to be applicable to everyone. And all of these nursing homes would have to be insured for something like this, would they not? Uh, the, 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 there, is man- there are insurance uh, uh, policies, absolutely, for you know, for certain behavior, but then the insurance company is going to argue that we, you know, we don't cover this, right? So, yeah. And we're not going to indemnify you. So don't count on the insurance company to pay. Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. Jordan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Tr- Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Uh, Dan is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. We keep forgetting to plug your latest book, which is on drugs itself. What is the title of that? It's called When Good Drugs Go Bad. Yeah. And so, uh, obviously, uh, there's a couple of different issues here. Let's, let's start with the opioid crisis. Uh, as I have mentioned uh, in the outset, uh, this, to me, seems to be more of a big pharma problem. Well, it's, it's our problem now, I guess, but certainly caused by big pharma, who tried to sell this drug as the opposite of what it is turned out to be. Are they doing their part in this discussion, do you think? Uh, yeah, it's really tough to say. I mean, big pharma... Pharmacy companies would normally say, you know, we have we we have our guidelines for how it should be used. We, you know, it, it's a prescription drug, therefore it's controlled that way. And once it gets into the hands of doctors, however, they can um, prescribe as they wish. And once it gets into the hands of users, patients, um, they can use it as they want. Right. So certainly, it would be good for pharmacy companies to be uh, more involved in. In this, but it's a, a difficult thing for them to. I'm not trying to apologize for them, but saying like, what could they do? Say, don't use it as much because doctors have the right to go off what's called off-label usage, right? So things like fentanyl were originally used for, you know, post-operative immediate pain killing, uh, and somehow they, that got into being used for more uh, sustained use, right? So, so. Certainly, they could be more involved in this. Government could be more is becoming much more involved in sort of the um, awareness raising as our physicians themselves. But um, it, it does it, it's a difficult thing for pharmacy companies to to do on their own. And and you know to be completely mercenary, they also they're interested in selling a product. So yeah. if they want to make sure that that product is is dealt with well or, or properly they would then have to get into saying you need to regulate us more and it's hard for companies to to do that. Right? Uh, didn't though they sell this as a cleaner drug than what it was? Didn't they present this as a safer drug than what it was? 
Uh, I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, I, I just I can't you know speak on that how how they marketed it originally. Um, it certainly is one of those substances. You mean um, like which you know? There's a whole bunch of different types of opioids that have different levels of potency and things like that, right? Um, so something like fentanyl, which is a lot far more uh, far stronger than some of the other ones, could have been marketed as you don't need as much to get the same effect. Um, but I, that's in my that's just speculation on my part. Uh, doctor, uh, a specific doctor in Windsor, Ontario, Dr. Christopher Blue, calling on governments and healthcare insurers to ensure medical marijuana is covered under programs. Mm. Is this the answer? Is this an answer or one of the answers to the opioid, opioid crisis? I, yeah, I guess it is. I mean, one of the problems with the opio- opioid crisis, as it's called, is that um, people are, are taking opioids for chronic pain. Uh, and there's some compelling research that shows that cannabis is very good for chronic pain. Um, there is some research going on about um, sort of acute pain, like immediate, say, post-operative, or you know, you break a bone and cannabis. There's some research on that. Um, a lot of the research in the, in the states is, has been difficult to do because of the status of, of cannabis um, as a Schedule One drug. But um, it could be part of the solution. Uh, one of the challenges is that you know. A, physician's recourse to painkilling is often opioids, right? If you want to get into prescription medicine, things that work quickly, um, that's where they would go. Um, cannabis is now, you know, we've known about this for a while, but with more scrutiny around medical and now around recreational cannabis, there's more um, interest in it as an alternative. Um, it's not addictive in the same kind of way, um, if at all. I mean, that's, that's debatable. Uh, it's addictive properties. It certainly doesn't build the sorts of tolerance that um, opioids do um, and isn't associated with a lot of the side effects that um, that opioids have. So it could be one of the basically saying instead of going reaching for one drug or one set of types of drugs like opioids, physicians would look to other types of like look to a range of, of drugs for this. Some people say, you know, opioids are no better than like ibuprofen for certain types of pain, right? Um, so there is a if it opens the door to more sophisticated uses of of, of drugs and painkilling, then absolutely. One concern I have is that how come the only solution to painkilling is another drug, hmm. right? Um, and you remember about twelve, fifteen years ago, the, the provincial government delisted both chiropractic and um, physical therapy. I think physical therapy from. Um, OHIP coverage, right? So there were there were non-drug um, solutions to certain. I mean, I'm not saying that any of these things are, are a, you know a, um, a panacea completely, but to certain types of pain. Um, but the the turn is always to another type of drug, and this I think is the heart of the problem: is that our pain relieving approach is about finding a different drug, a different thing to take. Why is that? Because, you know, basically what you're saying, uh, drugs are free, physical therapy isn't anymore, so people are going to drugs. Yeah, um, I, well, I, this is speculation, but based upon my, my observations as a historian and, a, I guess, a cultural commentary commentator, is that, um, and, and as a medical historian, the idea that there's certain type of research that's more credible than other types of research um, is a phenomenon of our current medical system. And what I mean is that uh, if someone wants the most credible type of research in the minds of um, you know, biomedical researchers today, is, is, it's called the gold standard. It's the placebo-controlled double-blind trial, right? 
which is the thing where, you know, you set up two groups of people. One, one group of people gets a, um, a sugar pill. The other group of people gets the actual drug. That's mm-hmm. the placebo control, right? But you blind it by not letting the person know what they're getting. But then you double blind it by not letting the person dispensing it know what they're giving, right? So it's, it's through a whole system of checks, right? So that's considered the most effective way of assessing a medical intervention. But it only works with things like drugs. Because if you're a chiropractor, you know whether you're adjusting someone. And if you're a patient, you kind of will feel it. Um, if you're, you know, um, doing acupuncture, you know whether or not you're... So you can never double-blind it. So it can never reach that standard of what some people consider to be um, the, the ideal. The, the problem is that basically it loads the cards against, uh, or you know, loads the dice, or stacks the deck against non-drug-related therapies. So we have it in our mind that, that that's the best way because it meets the standard that's set up to test drugs, hmm. right? It's, it's kind of a complicated, what we call an epistemological problem, the way we think about knowledge, right? But it, it really reaches the heart of, of one of the challenges, which is why do we keep looking to drugs? Well, because drugs are the ones that fit the model that our medical system is based upon now. Fascinating. I never thought of it from that point of view, uh, yeah. especially when it comes to physical therapy, things like uh, mm-hmm. chiropractor uh, mm-hmm. and such. That, that's an interesting take. Uh, yeah. Is there enough investigation into medical marijuana? Are doctors gun-shy about this? I think they are. I think one of the challenges is that um, one of the things we've talked about many times, right, is the association with cannabis and sort of deviance and stuff like that. But the other thing is the limited amount of research that's being done on it um, and the very um, early stages of sort of the investigating the chemical diversity of it, right? So if you're getting CBDs as opposed to THC, the different components in there that cause different, uh, have different effects, um, you're going to uh, we're going to need to see more research on that. And there is more research going on on that. If you're just looking at, in the States, I guess, the, one of the main issues is that when you want to research cannabis, you can only get it from one place, and that place doesn't have the kind of variety that might capture different types of um, uh, s- symptoms, affect different types of symptoms, right? Um, so we see a lot of the medical marijuana producers in Canada sort of developing different strains or using different strains that have been developed um, before it was medically um, legal, um, uh, to it address different um, different uh, symptoms and so or different conditions. And so um, that research is still ongoing. And because if we say medical marijuana, we're talking about a real range of types of that plant, um, then we're going to then then research can look, uh, it can look like you know that one one type of research might be, show effectiveness and one type might show ineffectiveness because they're using different strains of the cannabis, right? So, so it's hard for for docs to get their head around that. I think is one issue. Another issue is they weren't trained to use cannabis, so it, it's kind of stepping outside of what might be a comfort zone for a lot of physicians. Um, yeah. Dr. Blue suggests that colleagues may be gun-shy with prescribing medical marijuana because health care mm-hmm. providers were misled by drug companies claiming opioids like OxyContin were not mm-hmm. harmful. There's a fear mm-hmm. among physicians, and rightfully so, he says, look what happened with OxyContin. It's now yeah. an epidemic. Uh, yeah. Is that suggesting that medical marijuana could become an epidemic? Uh, uh, probably not. Um, they are very they're very different substances. They have different effects on the brain. There's not as much 
indication I, I, for anyone to have said that opioids, whether synthetic or you know from actual opium, um, did not have sort of dependency effects would just be misleading. They might say it's not as harmful in other ways, but cannabis doesn't indicate that kind of physical, neurological, neurochemical dependency effect. Um, which is one of the main problems we have. Um, it, in other words, you don't need more of it to get the same effect, right? That's what a dependency is, right? And that can lead to addiction. It's not always addiction itself, but it can lead to, you know, I need more of this, I need more of this, and then your body builds this. What happens is your brain adjusts actually to to what you're taking, and so you need more of the stuff to, to use the same. And it's not just opioids, um, but we haven't seen this in cannabis there are long-term effects in cannabis, but they haven't. They don't seem to be as um, significant. Um, many of them are sort of, you know, lethargy and sort of people sitting around not wanting to do anything, but but not the sorts of incredible debilitating effects. And I haven't heard of the kinds of overdose effects that we see from, say, fentanyl or carfentanil or even oxy and stuff like that um, with with cannabis. Uh, this doctor alludes that uh, there is not enough production, that, you know, he's got waiting mm-hmm. lists of, you know, X number of weeks before he can even get in to, to see people. Are we, yeah. is there not enough production or is this just catching on so fast the demand is so high? I think it's both. Um, I think that uh, as as we move towards legalization, um, a lot of people who may not have considered medical marijuana before are probably saying, hey, this if the government says it's okay, recreationally, then why wouldn't I try it medically, right? Um, so we're going to see that increase. I think what we will see, and, and I'm not, I don't like to predict because I'm always wrong, but I think what we're going to see is um, a move towards uh, legalizing more of what would now be considered um, illegal um, develop- manufacturers of, of cannabis as the recreational um, system opens up, because that's the only way you're going to be able to deal with the kind of capacity. Will, will the recreational demand uh, interfere with the medical demand? I think so. Yeah, um, a lot of in, in many ways, uh, the medical demand opened the door for the recreational demand. It, it legitimized it, right? It, it you know when you have something that's a medicine, it's hard to it's hard to believe this idea that it's such a deviant substance, right? So it opened the door to legalization and. Um, just like someone might, you know, kick back at the end of the day and have a beer to relax, which is not a medicine, but it might have the effect that some people are looking for with medical cannabis. People who are looking, who, who might just need a, a basic palliative in their uh, cannabis, might just go the recreational route instead of having to go um, to the um, prescription or the you know, medical marijuana you know, process. Well, However, one- that's. Sorry, that said, um, farm. If, if this, if if cannabis is added to Health Canada's list of of drugs that can be covered, then under insurance, um, uh, under under the different um, health plans that we have, um, it may be that people will continue to go to medical uh, marijuana for certain conditions because their prescriptions might be covered. How will we balance both of these industries? I mean, if you're a producer, will you generate more revenue selling to one than the other? Uh, is one more uh, appealing than the other? Uh, yeah, that's one of the uh, challenges. I think from from my understanding of the medical marijuana um, industry, 
they have spent a lot of time differentiating themselves from recreational cannabis by talking about things like the discrete components within cannabis, the effects, the physiological effects and things like that. Um, so you end up with this uh, much more sophisticated approach to the substance as, a, as it treats people. When you're looking at recreational marijuana, you don't have to make that differentiation. You can say it gives this kind of high or, you know, I don't, I don't know all the, all the descriptions, but you don't have to talk about the specific conditions it treats. So it may be cheaper uh, if, you're, if you're developing both of these, you know, if you're developing for both to go the recreational um, uh, route because then you would just be selling a substance without all of these concerns about certain types of controls around medical um, you know, the, the different medical descriptions and stuff like that. And at the same time, you don't have to, um, you don't have to follow all of Health Canada's rules, which seem to be fairly um, complex. Will insurance companies, we're certainly hearing rumors that they're starting to consider it. Will insurance companies cover this? And, you know, why pay if you can get your insurance company to cover it? Um, I think they probably will. We did have that one, um, was it, uh, the Loblaws, corporation was going to include it i think what we'll see is insurance companies they're they're businesses that compete with other insurance companies for customers right and if if this is found to be um an appealing add-on to the insurance uh to, to what you get from your insurance it will be added and then others will follow it's just like some health insurance companies um, include chiropractic and natural medicines and stuff like that because their customers want it and because that will add more customers, right? So they'll do the same thing if cannabis, uh, if medical marijuana um, coverage appeals to customers. And, and of course, if it doesn't affect their bottom line so much that, it, it, that they can't afford to. Can you add anything as far as updates on 2018? Is this on schedule? Is it following? Is it falling behind? Where are we in this discussion? I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we we know the same stuff, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the premiers are still saying we need a little more time. I know that in Ontario there was there has been a lot of action behind the scenes before the legislation was um, presented back in what was it April now. Um, I'm I sometimes find it surprising for. Um, when provinces say, "Oh, we need so much time to sort this out," when um, it's they're making it more complex than it needs to be, but I think that's because of the politics behind it, mm. not because of the actual administration around it. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thanks for the time; much appreciated. Thanks, lot, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Lots uh, are complaining about uh, Canadian energy prices, or sorry, Ontario energy prices. Uh, Even while I was uh, on my trip in the van with people touring around Italy and talking about high-speed rail and LRT, and and of course, uh, because uh, because Italy does not have the resources that Canada does, uh, the expense that electricity is there. and uh, it's just it's a topic on everyone's mind and it is not going away. And I remember, uh, as you know, we've had heated discussions with the energy minister and even the premier on this show uh, about their electricity plan. And again, as soon as you question it, they'll seem to paint you into a corner like you're sort of some sort of fossil fuel burning pig who doesn't believe in renewable energy. 
I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think Ontarians want a green province, uh, but I also believe that there's a balance and a way to go about this uh, in a much slower way, which, of course, uh, doesn't create the havoc that uh, the Premier and her policies have created. We've had no shortage of experts on this show saying the exact same thing and that all of this was predicted when they headed down this road and refused to listen to anybody uh, with an outside thought. Uh, I specifically remember a couple of things when chatting with the Energy Minister, Glenn Tebow. Uh, One was on the 8% rebate, which came before they uh, punted the whole thing down the road and refinanced it. Uh, when they tried to just give us an 8% rebate, and of course, when that didn't work, they refinanced the thing. Um, you know, I remember him saying at that point, well, the more, the more you spend, the more you save. The more electricity you buy, the more you save, which, you know, uh, that made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever when it comes to uh, your electricity. It might mean something at Walmart, but I don't think it means anything when you're trying to pay your, your, your electricity bill. And then I remember asking him on a different occasion uh, as he talked about all the uh, green energy jobs that were going to be created in this sector to replace the manufacturing jobs that have left because factories can't afford to pay their electricity bill. Uh, He alluded to 40,000 jobs that had been created in the renewable renewable energy sector. Uh, And when I asked to, you know, to him to drill down on that even more, he pointed to Tilsonburg and how Tilsonburg was an example of you know, a community that was benefiting from uh, renewable energy. Uh, today we get this note from Christine Van Gein, uh, of course, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, this ran in the London Free Press. And it says the people of Tilsonburg in southern, uh, southwestern Ontario are the latest victims of the provincial government's inconsistent and incoherent public policy on energy. On Tuesday, today, Siemens announced the closing, the closing of its Tilsonburg wind turbine plant. This was the one the energy minister was talking about. He was, this was the example he used as a job creator in renewable energy. Today, it announced they're closing the wind turbine plant, which means 340 jobs lost uh, in the town this year, including 206 immediately. To talk more about all of this, Christine Van Gein is with us from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She is on the line with us now. Hello, Christine. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. Um, when I, As I mentioned before, when I talked to Energy Minister Glenn Tebow about all of this, they used Tilsonburg as an example of all those jobs that were going to be created. What happened here? Yeah, so um, basically the jobs that were created in, in Tilsonburg were largely created because of government subsidies. So um, there was a big wind contract for, uh, for Samsung and uh, Siemens, the company that was running the factory in uh, Tilsonburg, was was producing turbine blades to to supply the the Samsung contract. But the problem with um, industries that are reliant on subsidies is that these jobs are are jobs that depend on subsidies. So when the subsidies end, the jobs end. These aren't real jobs. This isn't a real industry that's self-sufficient. And when the government decided last year that it was going to end um, the procurement process for electricity in the renewable field because um, 
admittedly they uh, i mean obviously to the rest of the province it was it was making the cost of energy um totally unaffordable so they stopped this procurement well that meant that um the people who were producing the turbine blades in Kilsenberg uh didn't have any anyone to sell the blades to so um the problem with subsidies is that the jobs really last as long as the subsidies do and that's what has happened here so were, were these ever long-term jobs or was this a direct result of her canceling the plants that we don't or the farms that we don't need? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely related to the fact that these are subsidy-dependent jobs. The jobs lasted for seven years. So um, if you want to say that those are long-term, I guess the government could define them as long-term, but really seven years is not a, a real industry if it can't support itself without, without subsidies. As, and it proved that it couldn't. And the people who are paying the price for that are the 340 people who just lost their job in Tilsonburg. Those are the 340 people who, um, you know, have been hard hit in, in this community in all over southwestern Ontario where plants and manufacturing um, factories are, are closing because of high electricity prices. And it's not the fault of the people who are working at the factory. It was a fault of the government for basically misleading the province and misleading these workers. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm guessing the province, uh, Premier Wynne and Energy Minister Thibault will say, well, you wanted us to stop this, so when we stop it, we're going to put people out of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, that that's the catch-22 here. It, it's really sad for these workers. I mean, they, we did, we have called, the whole province has called for the government to stop buying these unnecessary contracts for renewable fuels because it's putting other industries out of business. The problem is that people who are paying the price are these workers. And they were the workers who were told, don't worry about the Cami assembly plant closing. Um, don't worry about Caterpillar closing in London or Kellogg's closing, closing or, or any of these, you know, the, the Ford plant in Talbotville closing. Don't worry about that. The green economy is, is going to uh, come in and there will be tons of manufacturing jobs like this. But, but it hasn't happened. And it's, it's the misleading statements by the government that are, are really hurting people in these communities. The jobs haven't appeared, or if they have, they haven't stayed. So is the answer here we should keep building wind turbines then? No, the answer is just, the answer is not to stop keep building wind turbines. Um, those are, are what is putting other industries out of business. The problem here is the hypocrisy of the government. What we need is a government to focus on making electricity affordable and um, not pursuing a long, uh, long-term renewable procurement uh, you know, that was the right decision by the government. Um, it was a $3.8 billion procurement that would have increased the price of power even more and put even more businesses out of work, uh, out, of, out of the province here. Um, so it was the right decision, but it, it's a whole quagmire that's really been created by uh, incoherent and inconsistent policy by the government. How, can, how are wind turbines putting others out of business? Because the government agreed to pay well, well above market rates, and some in some contracts, I think it was up to twenty times above market rates, and um, on average, I think it was uh, about three times market rate. But in some of these contracts, are totally outrageous. So um, when you're paying above market rates and you're generating electricity um, above what you actually need in the province, and then we sell that electricity to um, places like New York and Michigan where their electricity becomes much cheaper, of course, 
factories are going to leave Ontario and go to those other places where we're subsidizing their electricity prices. So uh, that's a big part of the problem here in Ontario. So your point is uh, because the wind turbines are creating such an expensive rate for electricity, that's driving the jobs out. Of, of course it is. And the jobs that we were promised, these green jobs that were supposed to magically appear, um, they are not appearing. And the ones that have appeared are disappearing, like the one that, that was just in Tilsonburg. What about other green jobs? Again, uh, the energy minister said to me there's like 40,000 spinoff jobs just, uh, you know, and again, centered around the Tilsonburg plant and, and such. What are the other green jobs that, other than building wind turbines, I guess? So these are all claims that have been made for a really long time by the Ontario Liberal government. Um, back when the Green Energy Act was introduced in 2009, Dalton McGuinty said that the plan would create 50,000 new jobs. And he said that it, it did create those jobs. Um, but the Auditor General has really slammed those claims. Most of those jobs, 30,000 of them, so more than half were um, were short ter- very short-term construction jobs, so shorter term even than the turbine um, than the turbine jobs. What is Siemens saying about this? Why do they say they're closing the plant? So Siemens has said that it's not related to the subsidies, although of course, of course they would say that. Um, what they say is that it's related to um, the size of the blades. So um, the blades that the Siemens plant produces are smaller than what what now um, what the what the the trend is for blades internationally and even uh, basically everywhere now. They can create much larger windmills with much larger blades, and they're um, they're more productive plants. So uh, the Siemens so the Siemens plant is already out of date. Yeah, of course, and that, that's a big problem with the green energy, even the the. Um, the way the government sort of refinanced the windmills that we have right now, those windmills that we have right now are currently, those are old technology, and they're less productive than new technology. And by saying we're going to pay for those windmills that we already have for um, for 30 years instead of 20 years, which was the original agreement, we're paying for 30 years for outdated technology that actually has a less than 20-year lifespan. So it's really the, the refinancing uh, that the government just did is, is even is just terrible. So why not retrofit the plant? Why not modernize the plant so it's producing something that keeps up with this industry? Um, I mean, you'd have to ask the people at Siemens that question. I think um, they, they would have a better answer than I would about that, about what they can do with that plant. I think that it used to be a plant before it was a green energy plant. It, it was uh, it was producing something else. So. Who knows? Maybe they're going to change it and turn it into something better um, that can still provide jobs. But with the manufacturing sector in Ontario, where the minimum wage is now going to be $15 an hour for low-skilled work and where um, where electricity prices are uncompetitive with our, our direct neighbors, uh, it's hard to justify as a business. A lot of businesses are having a hard time justifying retrofits and things like that. Uh the government was giving Siemens money to do all of this. Uh, has that stopped? Well, the thing is that the the long term procurement was stopped. So there was going to be a new procurement of new um, wind farms across Ontario. And last year, the government suspended that. They suspended it abruptly in September of 2016. So they were going to hand out a whole lot new co- of new contracts for new windmills, and they decided not to do that. Um, in large part, they decided not to do it because uh, people like me, people like people like you are saying that these contracts are costing 
um, Ontario ratepayers a lot of money and a lot more money. And the Auditor General was saying it, that these contracts are costing too much money. So the government abruptly suspended that procurement, which meant the government's market for these windmills um, dried up. That being said, how can this plant supply windmills or wind turbines for the next 20 years or whatever if it's old technology? Like even like even if this contract wasn't canceled, um, they're still the, the the plant's still producing old technology. Um, yeah, so I guess for for main, th- there's no demand for old technology except perhaps for um, maintenance for say a blade that broke off of a windmill that is an old windmill here in Ontario, and there will be some of that, but there's not enough demand for that to justify. I, I suppose there's not enough demand to justify keeping the plant uh, in Ontario. The reason the plant gave for closing was a lack of demand for there you um, go. for for the, the so maybe if the, so maybe if the demand had continued, uh, maybe they'd have money for the technology to upgrade. Is that what they're suggesting? Um, I don't I don't know if they were actually able to retrofit the plant to create a different product. You know, like sometimes these plants, uh, the way they're designed, they they can't easily change what they're producing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, where are the wind turbines coming from then? Or is that it? We're not building anymore. Right now, we're not building new ones. The ones that are being built right now are just ones that um, are under existing contracts. So it was the cancellation of the large renewable procurement in September 2016 um, that was an abrupt change to the industry. Man, this just gets, this just gets getting wor- keeps getting worse with every step, doesn't it? Um, what yeah, it's the people of Tilsonburg who, who suffer. Yeah. Now, what is any idea what the government response has been to the closure of this plant in Tilsonburg? Um, the government has said, I, I think the government has said that it was not because of the large renewable procurement. But I mean, that's a, the cancellation of that. But it's kind of absurd. For, for so what they, they are telling us what it's not. Are they telling us what it is? Um, I, I actually am not 100% sure what the government's response on this has been. I'm, I'm sure they have one, but um, I don't take a, I, I think most of the time when, when things like this happen, um, you have to take what the government says with a grain of salt. Um, it's sad because they were touting this factory as an example of green jobs, and it, it hasn't panned out the way they promised people it would. Uh, any idea how many green jobs have been created and where they are other than the Siemens plant? Um, you know, a lot of the green jobs that were created, the, the Auditor General has said, were uh, were temporary. So it was temporary construction, um, you know, work put into um, building, building windmills, building these wind farms, um, those are those are not long-term jobs, obviously, and the, and the, the Auditor General has been very critical of that claim by the government. Uh, can government hold Siemens to anything, considering the amount of money they've given them, or is the deal's done and we move on? Uh, I'm not. I'm not 100% sure about that. I, I think that it's probably what's done is done, um, but but I'm I don't I don't know about the details of what the government could claim against Siemens. I think that. Um, the, what they had given them were contracts, and I think the contracts are being, uh, as far as I know, the contracts are being fulfilled. Do you know if the government has any plans to start this stuff all up again, or are we already in knee-deep and we can't afford any more? We don't need any more. W- what's the government's next play on wind turbines? Where, where does this go from here? So that is the big uh, 
concern that I have with the large renewable procurement that was suspended in 2016. It wasn't actually canceled. The government suspended the procurement and they suspended it only a few months after ordering it. So they they said that we want to buy more windmill turbines. We want to build more of these in Ontario. Um, And then just a few months later, they reversed course and they said it was a suspension. Uh, If it's suspended, that means you know, in in the in the summer of next year, if this government's reelected, they can simply um, restart the procurement process uh, because it was never fully canceled. They can just they can just uh, rev it all up all, all over again, and we can end up with more generation that we don't need that's that's above market rates. Uh, where do you think this is going? Is this going to resonate with Ontario voters? I think anytime there are large job losses, it resonates with voters, and I think. In that region in particular, in southwestern Ontario, where a lot of manufacturing has left that region, it really resonates. I think people are are quite upset in that region, especially because they're also paying incredibly high electricity rates. They're, they're paying some of the highest in, you, um, in southern Ontario. Christine, do you think we're going to still be talking about this tomorrow? Uh, about this particular issue? Um, you, you know, you never know. There's, uh, there's plant closures almost every week. So there was another one that was just announced um, last week about um, a wiring company in Aaron, which is near uh, near Welland. So um, I guess on to the next one, as, as I say, uh, another plant closes quite frequently in Ontario. It's sad. Christine Van Gein has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario Director. Uh, where are our green jobs going? Uh, they have noted, of course, that the Siemens plant, which was touted by the Energy Minister as a success story in creating jobs on this show just a few months ago, is now closing. Christine, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.